The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Some of them, you know, have a very hard time putting together a plot. Um, they have the general idea of, man, we should, we should derail a train or we should take down a power grid. But the actions don't usually raise up to this like level of this mastermind Hollywood idea of a terrorist. Um, we've seen a number of cases where the FBI has interjected themselves in the process. And it may have been the white supremacist's idea to attack, say, the, an energy grid. But there was some some help along the way to get them to the point where they can have handcuffs on them. You know, we we always think like, you know, are these kind of masterminds planning this out? And the and the short answer is usually not. The downside is is if it's such a large sector, critical infrastructure, then the opportunities there are vast, right? And you know, because we we rely on kind of a system of systems, there's not a huge level of backup on these things, right? You you take down one spot and it has a ramification. You know, we saw that in COVID, right? So when we shut down certain areas, um, other things get affected. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 24th, 2022. Last month, the George Washington University Program on Extremism published a report called Mayhem, Murder, and Misdirection, Violent Extremist Attack Plots Against Critical Infrastructure in the United States. To talk through that report and a recent Lawfare article on the topic, I sat down with Alana Krill, a research fellow at the Program on Extremism, and Seamus Hughes, the program's deputy director. We discussed the white supremacists and Salafi jihadists who make up these movements, the encrypted channels through which propaganda and plans are spread, and what's to be done to protect critical infrastructure in the United States. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 24th, the violent extremist threat to critical infrastructure in the United States. So Seamus and Alana, you have just released this report and, and subsequent Lawfare article on, on the targeting of critical infrastructure by violent extremists. So to, to start things off, can you tell me a bit about who the actors are here? Which violent extremists are we talking about? So the, the report uh, looked at, at attacks and plots in the last six years. So since 2016, um, directed towards critical infrastructure. And so what we tried to do was we took about 94 cases that we had, uh, 55 uh, white supremacists, 39 jihadists, and said, like, listen, what are they targeting, right? Are they looking at energy sector? Are they looking at the internet? Are they looking at uh, schools or, or things like that? And what are the lessons we can learn from those type of things, right? Uh, there's a giant talk about this, this need for critical infrastructure. But when we found out from the report is not a whole lot of people kind of dug into the data a bit. Um, so when Alana and Bennett were working on this, you know, they found some kind of interesting stuff. This is a niche area that no one really focuses entirely on. 
and these actors, whether they be white supremacists or jihadists, they share some some levels of tactics, but there are also some some differences that are interesting. And Alana, I know that there's this distinction in the report between homegrown violent extremists and domestic violent extremists. I think to a layperson's ear, <laughs> these might sound like synonyms. Could you describe sort of the, the distinction there? Yes. So homegrown violent extremists include actors that are motivated by foreign terror organizations such as Al-Qaeda or Islamic State, but are residents or have grown up or are um, citizens of the United States. Domestic violent extremists are somewhat the actors we've seen at, say, the January 6th Capitol siege. They adhere to white supremacist doctrines that includes your average neo-Nazi actor within the United States, those who adhere to um, neo-fascist ideology. Great. And, and Seamus, you know, now that we've we've gotten that squared away, we're talking about mostly Salafi jihadists and, and white supremacist movements, militias, etc. What do we mean by critical infrastructure here? Materially, you know, what does that look like? Yeah, no, it's it's a catch-all phrase, right? So if if the terminology of homegrown violent extremism was confusing and versus domestic violent extremism, extrapolate that even further for critical infrastructure. Um, so it's 16 different industries, uh, and it can range from um, energy industry, it can range from uh, schools, military bases, kind of everything you could think of that's critical infrastructure. Uh, anything that, that keeps the lights on and the internet on is time of the folks or trains and, and airplanes and things like that. Things that we've seen traditionally that Al Qaeda has focused on, you know, obviously 9-11, we have the attack on on airplanes and, and other places like that. But we've also seen a rise of, of plotting and attacks towards um, rail systems and buses and things like that. And you know, your, your original question about, you know, what is this difference between domestic violent extremism and homegrown violent extremism? Um, obviously, it's ideology, right? So it's it's one's foreign-based, which would be homegrown violent extremists. That's ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Uh, and then domestic is, you know, the, the garden variety of white supremacists and neo-Nazis. And it's really confusing for the public to understand those dynamics. And that's because we have this, like, god-awful system in government where we try to confuse people as, as much as possible. It makes sense to the FBI agent talking to the DHS officer. Um, but for the for the general public, this idea of domestic violent extremism and homegrown violent extremism being very different, it, it confuses people. But it's kind of just what we're stuck with now. And Seamus started to hint at this um, at an earlier answer about the motivations behind this report. You mentioned that there's a lot of rich data out there, but no one is really comparing it and, and no one's quite talking about it. Alana, could you could you speak to a bit about, you know, what motivated you to embark on this project with your colleagues, um, you know, what you were hoping to find and, and what you were looking for? Yes. So when we first entered this space and started thinking about critical infrastructure targeting, we had a wide range of actors to choose from when um, starting this comparative study. We elected white supremacists and Salafi jihadists because they are known to government agencies to be some of the most lethal actors out there that conduct some of the most lethal attacks. And from there, we noticed that there was a gap in the literature, especially comparative literature, surrounding critical infrastructure targeting by all types of extremists, specifically white supremacists and Salafi jihadists. So we wanted to compare over the last six years, their actions, their what targets they tended towards and their successes, their failures, and what it all means for the state of critical infrastructure moving forward. 
And Seamus, I think a lot of listeners will be wondering at this point, you know, how how bad could this be or how bad could it get? Critical infrastructure, as you said, is is definitionally right there. It's critical. Um, so what's this? What's the spectrum of severity that we're looking at? You know, from from the low end to the high end, if some of these attacks were to be successful. Yeah, that's always the question when you look at these kind of homegrown or domestic violent extremist groups is like, you know, how much capability do they actually have? Um, and if you peel back the numbers, you know, we're talking about 94 different individuals. It's not that large of a, of a, of a sample size, admittedly so. You've got a population size of 330 million. So you're not talking about a large number of folks. But we have seen both in the propaganda, whether it be ISIS or increasingly white supremacists saying, listen, we got to take down the energy grid because for the ISIS guys, it's like we take that down and then the system falls. And for domestic violent extremists, it's like we got to start a civil war, right? This is this is the way to do it. But most of these guys, for lack of a better word, are, are knuckleheads, right? Dangerous knuckleheads hold really uh, atrocious beliefs and all of those things. Um, but some of them you know, have a very hard time putting together a plot. Um, they have the general idea of, man, we should we should derail a train or we should take down a power grid. But the actions don't usually raise up to this like level of this mastermind Hollywood idea of a terrorist. Um, we've seen a number of cases where the FBI has interjected themselves in the process. And it may have been the white supremacist idea to attack say, the, an energy grid. But there was some some help along the way to get them to the point where they can have handcuffs on them. You know, we, we always think like, you know, are these kind of masterminds planning this out? And the, and the short answer is usually not. The downside is, is if it's such a large sector, critical infrastructure, then the opportunities there are vast, right? And, you know, because we, we rely on kind of a system of systems, there's not a huge level of backup on these things, right? You, you take down one spot and it has a ramification. You know, we saw that in COVID, right? So when we shut down certain areas, um, other things get affected. To go back to the the two umbrella groups that we're talking about here, as you've been you know talking about, they have their own motivations, which then will subsequently motivate different targets, uh, different methods. Um, so so taking each group you know separately, how do their beliefs then motivate which sector that they target? So I think you know your your report speaks well to the fact that the energy sector is is well targeted because it's so essential to every other sector, as you mentioned, it's a system of systems. But, you know, what is the, the white supremacist more likely to target versus the Salafi jihadist likely to target and why? So Salafi jihadists, we've seen throughout the cases that they tend to ta- target government infrastructure sectors, emergency services and commercial facilities. Their belief is that they're in an entrenched conflict with the West and Western governments So, in fact, it's quite logical that they target government infrastructure, per se. Compared to that, white supremacists, they tend to target energy sector the most. While they also want to create mass chaos, they're hoping to, as I said earlier, kind of influence and edge on the downfall of the United States systems and governance. But that includes a long-winded scale of attacks. So, they see the energy sector as one step in the process to influence all their energy sectors. So eventually down the road, the downfall of our society as we know it will occur. And I want to touch on something that was very important, which is this idea of accelerationism. So if we're going to confuse the listeners even more, let's add another definition. Um, accelerationists are, are you know, mostly of the domestic violence extremism mindset, but they're basically like, listen, we got to start a civil war. 
Um, the system that we have is not working. And if we can cause as much chaos as humanly possible, then so be it. Um, and the targeting gets a bit, a bit scattershot on that. And it's also particularly hard for the U.S. government to kind of wrap their head around because it's ideologically focused, but not really. Meaning that, um, you know, look at the the gentleman who put a bomb at the DNC and the RNC on January 5th, right? You know, if you put a bomb towards the DNC, you can give it an ideological pack for it. Put a bomb in front of the RNC, you get an ideological back. You put them on both, you're probably dealing with an accelerationist, right? Somebody's just trying to cause as much mayhem as possible. You know, we call it like the Joker effect, right? They just want to watch the world burn. Yeah, and, and kind of teasing out that thread a bit more, you know, in, in thinking about accelerationists, why is then critical infrastructure almost the perfect target for their aims? So critical infrastructure is one piece of potential vast targets that accelerationists could target. It's a key target for them because overall, as I think Seamus mentioned earlier, critical infrastructure itself, its assets are spread widely across the United States, which creates opportunity for, say, actors as far as the Northwest in the United States to target an asset that's closer to them. Additionally, there's, as Seamus mentioned, there's so many different infrastructure sectors. There's an ability to, say, target one initially and then what we've seen is these actors, they attempt to evade law enforcement and evade any consequences after what they hope would be after their first attack to target a different sector. Um, so it creates a wide range of opportunities for these actors who are motivated to do more than just one attack. You know, it's, it's this idea of a domino effect, right? You not, you knock out the power grid, then you move on to the trains, you move on to the buses, you go from there, and you cause as much mayhem as humanly possible. And that's what their end goal is, right? They think society is, is teetering on such an edge that if it just gives a little bit of a push, we'll be able to build back society into what we believe it should be. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Now, I want to go into some of these case studies, or these cases, rather, that, that you looked at. Can you give us a sense of what some of these plots looked like when they were being planned? I understand that, you know, Every person that you looked at here either was apprehended in the process of planning or attempting to carry out an attack. You know, what did some of these attacks look like? Uh, Seamus, I'll go back to you. Uh, it runs with the spectrum, right? So you in the Salafi jihadist uh, specter, you have a 
two or three guys who are targeting uh, the railway systems in the Northeast. Um, what I find the most interesting case would be one out of Ohio, which is um, a bunch of domestic violent extremists who were targeting energy sector, right? So the idea was to, to target a, a substation and go from there. What I find most interesting about that case is those guys were charged with material sports terrorism, which is a, uh, a very unique charge for a non-jihadist case. Um, most of these these guys get charged with some sort of like attack on infrastructure or gun charges or drug charges or things like that. This is a part of a, a case where DOJ decided to put their finger on the scale and, and charge these guys with material support. Now, they were lucky in some respects in that they pled out, right? Now, if you take a, a domestic violence extremism case to trial under material support terrorism, it gets a little bit messy pretty quickly without a connection to a designated foreign terrorist organization. Um, so I find those those cases the most to be the most interesting. And like I said, some of these guys, you know, you look at the plots and you think to yourself, there's no way this is going to happen, right? It's never going to come to fruition. On the other hand, you know, you only got to be lucky every once in a while on these type of things. And I think that's why um, the FBI was taking some of these cases so seriously. And Seamus, just one more follow up on that. You know, are, are we talking here mostly kinetic plots or also attempted cyber attacks as well? Yeah, cybersecurity is is probably a different animal. I mean, listen, it falls in the critical infrastructure, infrastructure clearly, but we don't have the capability. We don't we haven't seen the capabilities in the ninety four cases. You know, the uh, the low level DDoS attack is is probably within their window, but you know, widespread hacking of systems and things like that is not the skill set of these guys, right? You know, the white supremacists tend to like to shoot guns in the woods and drink beer. They don't like to spend their time learning Python and R. So it's a little bit different um, in the way they're doing things. They're kind of like the, the, the caveman approach to an attack. They're less likely to do kind of cybersecurity type of attacks. Those are much more state-sponsored, right? The Iran, the Russia, the China of the world. Um, we haven't seen that capability rise to a level for domestic violent extremists or even jihadists. Hopefully that calms some nerves among our listeners that uh, white supremacists don't want to learn Python. And who does? Really, honestly. Yeah, that, that's true. It's, it's relatable, honestly. <laughs> Alana, I want to go to you for this next one. I'm, in thinking about how these terrorist groups and their dangerous knucklehead members learn about critical infrastructure, how do they disseminate the knowledge to plan attacks? Is a lot of you know personal research online or, or are there networks of information where both propaganda of, of um, radicalization and ideology are spread, but then also sort of the, the hard knowledge to, to know where the vulnerabilities are in these infrastructure systems. Yes. So a lot of these actors come across this knowledge through, I'd say, personal research, but also mostly over communication apps, including Telegram. It could include encrypted apps where a lot of propaganda is being spread. For example, we saw a lot of accelerationist-focused groups emerge out of what was called the Iron March Forum, which was an online forum that where a lot of different domestic violent extremists were able to speak to their ideas, share information, targeting information, and where a lot of these groups, including the Adam Waffen Division or the base, congealed and started to branch off into their own like-minded groups. A lot of the propaganda being shared over these over these communication apps is how actors, especially lone individuals that hope to target critical infrastructures, it's where they find their information and their resources. We've seen this in multiple cases. 
furthermore, we have seen actors who are arrested for plotting to target critical infrastructure that have used resources such as books that understand more thoroughly how nuclear reactors work. So they use a wide range of materials, but I'd say most focus should be on the communication apps that they use, the information that they share. This also we've seen includes publications such as Terragram. It is known to be a collection of Telegram channels that discuss accelerationist plots and domestic extremist plots. They have published propaganda resources, including large-scale documents that explain critical infrastructure, the weaknesses, how to circumvent such security within the infrastructure. And that's definitely something that's most concerning. I would also mention the you know the labor intensiveness of these investigations, right? Um, so it's one thing if these guys are organizing on open platforms like Twitter and Facebook and things like that, relatively open platforms. It's a little bit of a different animal when they go to Telegram or other encrypted apps. Now, the FBI has always been complaining about this idea of going dark, right? We don't have a window into encryption and things like that. You know, there is some truth to that. I, I think what it, the real truth is, it just means a little bit more work on the front end, meaning that you got to run sources against it. Uh, you got to re- rely on online covert employees. It's a whole thing, right? Um, and you got to be in the channels all the time. And those channels get knocked down on a daily basis. You got to add it to the next one. You got to have somebody to vouch for you. So it's just a little bit more work on the front end for, for law enforcement. Um, but that's where these guys are, are, are heading now, right? So they're, they're basically just kind of trading their lessons learned online. And to add to that, a lot of these actors also take information and notes from past attacks that have occurred. There's propaganda books out there that discuss attacking critical infrastructure sectors. They're fiction. Let me be clear on that. They are fiction, but a lot of these actors in current day learn how or emulate this with their plots, with what they want to achieve. And that's something to be wary as well, because we can't control as a society the flow of media, but it's something that's really, really important to understand is that these materials being spread around are influencing new radicalized actors. And, you know, to to begin to shift the the conversation toward solutions, you know, what law enforcement can do. I'm curious, you know, the sharing of of blueprints, for example, are, are some of those classified and, and the mere sharing of it illegal? Or, you know, is it, is it perfectly legal to share, you know, information about how a power grid works? And then, you know, if so, you know, what challenges does that pose to law enforcement trying to, to root out these networks? Yeah, so you have you have an open flow of information on the internet, right? That's the best part about the internet. You can get the Taylor Swift CD and you can get a power plant grid. And both those things are fascinating to me, right? So there's very little that law enforcement do can restrict it. So you've seen some level of an, an attempt to basically, you know, not put some of the stuff online or airdrop some of the plans so they're not on on the online space. But for the most part, the, the horse is out of the barn, right? And so the question then becomes, uh, how do you harden what's already out there? And then how do you kind of, I mean, some of this is going to just be good old fashioned law enforcement, right? How do you infiltrate your network so that you know what's, what's up? If we look at solutions, right, there's, there's a variety of them, right? One is, I think one of the takeaways from the report is, yes, it's concerning, but it's not the be all end all. And so if they're not targeting energy, they're going to be targeting the public. If they're not attacking a power grid, they're going to be attacking the mall. 
And so at the end of the day, the target matters a little bit, but not as much as the individual itself, right? And getting yourself into the system where you can stop that individual from doing something horrible. Seamus, I was waiting for you to work in your uh, Taylor Swift reference. I mean, so well the new done. album dropped today. So like that's, this is an important thing. I don't really know why we're talking about critical texture. I mean, there's nothing more critical than Taylor Swift's new CD. Her album is fantastic. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to ask a bit of a, a cynical question, pivoting away from Taylor Swift, unfortunately, for the moment. You know, your, your report focused on cases in which individuals were apprehended, as I mentioned, in, in, the, in the process of planning or attempting to attack, you know, which may lead, like I said, a cynic to ask, you know, why, why pay closer attention to this if it seems like law enforcement's got this? You know, they've, they've been catching the bad guys and the plots have been foiled. So, Alana, to go to you, you know, why still raise the alarm on this um, by publishing a report? Well, it's important to raise an alarm for this because actually, in the scope of critical infrastructure across the United States, the government works closely with private sector partners to make sure that their critical infrastructure assets are protected, are up to date, are hardened against the most recent of threats. It's very important to understand that it's not just the government's job to protect such critical infrastructure and the assets around the country, but we need to be building more partnerships and stronger partnerships so that when threats arise, law enforcement as well as the private companies can be prepared and update their securities accordingly. I couldn't agree with Alana more on that, right? So, you know, it's one thing to add another guard base to Fort Bragg because you're worried about a threat. Um, that's not something that you can do at a power plant. You can't demand that they do things. You can add standards, you can add regulations, you can do all the variety of things you want to do. That takes time, right? At the end of the day, you need to have a partnership. The FBI needs to say, listen, these are the cases we saw. This is what we think they're targeting. And here's the information to the local power plant or other critical infrastructure and saying, this is what we're seeing, right? And this is where we think you should think about doing things. And that's where groups like InfraGuard that the FBI runs, that that works with private sector to alert them to emerging threats and things like that. It's going to rely a lot on private sector to do this. And then we have to figure out incentives for it, right? If you're, if you're worried about the bottom line, which you are as a private company, what is the incentive to stop um, these type of attacks or harden your stuff. And the answer is, you know, if it goes down, that's um, going to affect your bottom line. And so the more the FBI and law enforcement can kind of hammer home that place with the understanding that we're not talking about a massive uh, wave of people that are interested in this, but still something that's concerning nonetheless. So while critical infrastructure targeting, we've seen a lot of cases that have been unsuccessful that actors have unsuccessfully carried out their plots. There have been a small subsection of plots that have occurred that people were injured. Let's say in the 2016 attacks within Chelsea, New York and New Jersey, an actor who adhered to Al-Qaeda's ideology named Ahmad Khan Rahimi, he targeted a 5K race and other transportation systems using explosives, and it injured over 30 people. And this was only in 2016. There's been other attacks that have been successful, but it's really clear that while we hope these actors won't carry out their plans, we need to be diligent working with law enforcement and our private partnerships to prevent further attacks from happening. Um, So as much as there are a lot of cases that have not come to fruition. It's still a possibility and we should all be wary of that. Yeah. 
I would add that you know we learned the lessons from the past successful attacks, right? So think of the Oklahoma City bombing that killed hundreds of people, and then a number of security measures are put in place post that to try to harden federal buildings from that. Um, I hope that you know this report can provide some level of of nuance and understanding of the threats so that they we can prevent future attacks um, that occur. You know, this is not a Tom Clancy uh, novel, right? These are not these guys that are planning to you know poison the entire water system. They don't have the capability of those things, but they're still dangerous nonetheless. And so we we, we set ourselves up for failure uh, if we don't try to figure out what happened in the past so we can learn and prevent the future. In addition to that, there are other actors out there that we did not focus on for this report. Many other actors adhering to different ideologies that do target critical infrastructure. And we hope to dig into this into further research. But this is just a small subsection of the actors that are willing to target the United States system of governance and our society through critical infrastructure. I think we can leave it there. Stay tuned for more research from the program on extremism. Alana Krill and Seamus Hughes, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other offerings, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. 